0: Have you ever been in a conversation, perhaps with just one person or perhaps in a group, but with one person in that group, just before you say something, your eyes catch the eyes of that one person and then they begin to grin and you begin to grin because they know exactly what you're about to say. You ever had that moment happen? It happens a lot between spouses, perhaps when they're With other couples and then one's about to say something and they get kicked under the table. Like, don't say what I think you're about to say. And then they grin like, oh, you knew what I was going to say, didn't you? You know, in those moments we chuckle, we laugh. But the truth is, in those moments we realize that we're actually very known. That someone loves us and knows us very well. So well that they can actually predict what we're about to say and save us from some embarrassment probably. Um, here's even better news. God knows you exponentially deeper than that situation. In fact, He knows you uh, a centillion times deeper than that. A centillion is one with 303 zeros after it. God knows you in ways that are so deep You can't even numerically calculate it. And that is comforting. And we see that truth really laid out for us well in Psalm 139. So church, will you take your Bibles? And together with me, can we just digest and chew and explore and enjoy the truth of Psalm 139 this morning? While you're finding it, be aware there are a number of ways to see this chapter it has four primary sections. We could analyze them in that way. Uh, really, there are three of God's traits that are primarily mentioned in this psalm: His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. We could examine it that way. Uh, there's a number of responses that are in this chapter. We could look at those. There's an odd prayer in this chapter. We could look at that. But regardless of how you choose to perhaps um, you know break this down and analyze it, there are two primary truths that just surface in almost every verse, for sure in every paragraph. There are two um, non-negotiable theological truths that always rise to the top. Here they are. God's infinite knowledge about you and God's inescapable presence with you. So again, Regardless of how you choose to break this down, to look at it, to examine it, to outline it, you will find these two elements always rising to the top. God's infinite knowledge about you and God's inescapable presence with you. In fact, David, in essence, states both of these at the beginning and the end of this psalm. Look with me at his statement of declaration in verse 1, in which he says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now compare that to his statement of desire in verse 23. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Same words on the front and the back. It's kind of a bookend to show us. In declaration and desire, David's real thrust in this chapter to show that God knows him and God is with him. And he's very confident of this. So let's read Psalm 139. And just notice these two truths constantly emerging. Constantly rotating through all of the language. We'll look at verses 1 through 12 first. You'll notice that in the first six verses, he talks mainly about God's infinite knowledge. And in verses 7 through 12, his inescapable presence. Notice with me verse 1, of course. We'll read this again. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And here's how much God knows him. He says in verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Perhaps that's referring to... Well, he's retiring in the evening and he's getting up in the morning. Like you could say, God knows me from A to Z, start to finish, top to bottom, God knows me. Every single day, God is aware. It says, you discern my thoughts. But watch this, not just because you're close, you discern my thoughts from afar. That's how powerful, how present God is, how knowledgeable he is. God, you know my thoughts and you may not even necessarily be close in proximity per se. He says, you discern them afar, you search out my path. The word search there means measure, to mark out. He says, you search out my path, which there is a public, excuse me, is a a Hebrew way to talk about someone's public life, the path he takes. And then he says, you also search out my lying down, which is a way to describe his private life. So notice what he's done so far in just three verses. God, you know me from top to bottom, beginning to end, far, near, Public, private. God, you just know me. He says in verse 3 that you are acquainted with all my ways. How many ways, church? All. There's not a single way or a single avenue or path of your life that escapes God's knowledge and presence. Verse 4, he says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So look back at verse 2. He says, you know my thoughts from afar. And now he says, even before I speak a word, you know what it's going to be. And he says, you know it all together or completely. So David says, God, you know my thoughts. You know the words I'm going to say. You actually know every single word before I speak it. Verse 5, you hem me in, or the words there would be, you enclose me behind and before. More literally, you enclose me front and back. So do you see how in every single phrase, David's laying groundwork for that there's no space or place in his life that God doesn't know about and that God isn't present. He says, you lay your hand upon me. And his response to this in verse six is this. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I love the fact that David knows this about God. And while it could be terrifying, he actually finds it comforting. God, this knowledge is so wonderful. And can you agree with me that if someone knows you this well, up and down, front and back, start to finish, it's a little unnerving, right? (laughs) But David doesn't find God's infinite knowledge of him unnerving. He finds it very comfortable, comforting, wonderful. And he says, it's so high, I cannot even attain it. He next addresses God's inescapable presence. Look what he does. He asks these first two questions of the chapter. Where shall I go from your spirit, and where shall I flee from your presence? He now answers in three ways, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 11. The three ways are, first of all, in verse eight, he says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Notice the word if, lets us know. David's not saying he can do this. He's just saying that if I could, if I could go from, from one, um, like, like consider this a vertical axis, if I could go from top to bottom, the highest point north or the lowest point south, it wouldn't matter, you would be there. He then addresses the horizontal axis. Look at verse nine. If I take the wings of the morning, And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. The phrase wings of the morning probably refers to the rising of the sun, and the idea of the uttermost parts of the sea would be the other end of that horizon. So here he's saying, hey, no matter how far away it is, east to west, you're there. So he addresses the vertical axis in verse 8, the horizontal axis in verse 9. I believe in verse 11, and this may not be the best word to use, but it's what I'm comfortable with. He addresses the time axis. Look what he says. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So do you see what he's doing here? There's no night or day. There's no east or west. There's no north or south that God isn't present. Now combine that, of course, with what we learned about his infinite knowledge. and You begin to understand God's omnipresence, God's omniscience. He's infinite in his knowledge about you and and his presence is inescapable. Interestingly, what he begins to do in verse verse 13 is he begins to escalate these thoughts. Now you may say, how can you get any higher than that? Because let's be honest, we're at the mountain peaks of theology here. Describing God and his incredible knowledge of us, his presence with us. And yet, David does do exactly that. Look what he does in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. So now he's going beyond the visible arena of his life. That's 1 through 12. God, no matter where I am, north, south, east, west, start, finish, top to bottom, there's nothing invisible to you. In fact, he, he now says this. this Even so, Lord, you knew me. You formed me in my inward parts. You were there in the womb. Before anyone else saw me, you saw me. You were there. I'm especially fond of the phrase inward parts. It's interesting David would use that. It's the Hebrew word for kidney. And in that culture, historically, linguistically, they would use this word to describe the seat of of their personage or of their emotions, of of their way of thinking. In other words, we say this today, man, I'm gonna give it all I have. I'm gonna love you with all my heart. We kind of refer to the heart as the organ of like, uh, of, of, of centricity, you know, like, man, this is what I'm after. I'm gonna uh, put 100% into it, all my heart. I love you with all my heart. But in that culture, they would have said, hey, I love you with all my kidneys. That's how they would have worded that, okay? It's just referring to this, this seat of like, uh, of someone's emotion and, and capacity and passion. He says, God, that's where you were and that's what you saw. And I love this this word, you knitted me together, of intricacy and intimacy. And where did he do this? In his mother's womb. And so he says in response to that, verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is his individual response to God's uh, intimate creation. But he also realizes that God creates all things in this way. He does wonderful works generally as well. Look at the end of verse 14. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He knows it well because he's one of those wonderful works. Do you see the phrase? I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So David sees this both individually. He sees it generally. He's extolling God's presence and God's power, God's knowledge. Verse 15 continues this. Refrain in which he says, my frame was not hidden from you. The phrase not hidden indicates to us again, God is there, he's aware, he sees. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I think the depths of the earth is perhaps a metaphor or a euphemism for the womb of a woman. He's saying, when I was in that womb, unseen by anyone yet, you were there, you saw, you were present, you were forming me. I was being made. He continues this thought in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Probably here a reference to those embryonic stages in the early days, just after conception. Notice he says, my substance wasn't even formed yet. In your book were written every one of them. What was written? He says next, The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David, here in these four verses, does escalate the truth about God by saying this He was there and he knew before anyone else knew. Before anyone else was there, he was there. So it's amazing how David just continues to to heighten and showcase God's incredible, infinite knowledge about us and inescapable presence with us. He says in verse 17 in response to this, he says, So precious to me are your thoughts, O God. See the word thoughts there? Indicating, again, God's knowledge of us. He says that God's thoughts about him, the sum of them is vast. Take comfort in this, church, that God thinks about you more than anyone else. Uh, God thinks more often of you than anyone else. That, that's a comforting that, that you may think your spouse thinks about you all day long. Your spouse is not thinking about you as much as God thinks about you. And the thoughts that he has towards you. I mean, he, you're his special, wonderfully, fearfully made creation. So David here takes great joy once again in, in the thoughts of God towards him. He says in verse 18, If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The phrase still with you is a... Phrase of presence. And he says, whether it's coming off a a night, perhaps a sleeping well, or maybe he's referencing here, perhaps just a a meditative moment in which he's thinking about all of God's wonderful works. He says, whenever I kind of come back to reality, whenever I wake up, guess who's there? God. I mean, I hope the Lord's majesty and power is is just um, being raised in your life and heart this morning as David is unfolding for us a beautiful description of our God. On the heels of verse 18, I must admit, though, he does kind of enter into a prayer that's very odd. I think you'll agree with me there. Can we just read it straight through and maybe ask what in the world does this mean and why is it here? He says next, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil against you, excuse me, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete or holy hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, I'll just admit to you, that's a tough section of this chapter. Uh, it seems kind of inserted, like, man, you know, David seems angry on the, on the heels of being very joyful. Well, he tells us, first of all, his, his anger here is righteous. And here's where I think it's coming from. David is, and well, I should say David was a man on the run. Much of his early life was running from those who wanted to kill him, who did not know him, but were fearful of him, didn't like him. And so they were out to get him and to murder him, to shed his blood what you find here really I think is David agreeing with God about men who want to take his life and end his life and shed his blood he's saying Lord that's not right that's a sin that's that's wrong and I agree with you that that's this shouldn't be and so he's asking for God's defense in this moment in which they they don't value his life He's pleading to God for God's defense and he's agreeing with God that he does not see life that way. Now, I think a deeper understanding too is, is seeing this. This is a very honest prayer. Uh, officially, these are called, as well as some of the other Psalms, imprecatory prayers. And so they're, they're, they're radically raw. They just come to us in all of their honesty and um. You know, rawness. But can I say this to you? No one prays this way to a God that they don't already know knows them. Like, you don't bear your soul in this fashion if you're not confident God knows the intent and motives of your heart and that He's with you. I mean, think about it. You can be with someone that. Loves you, and that you love them, and you have this strong relationship. But sometimes, you know, even even among those, you question: Should I share what's really on my heart? Should I let these words out? What are they going to think? Will this hurt the relationship? But David, apparently, he's got no fear of sharing with God what's what's intimate in his heart. What he feels about these folks who are after his life, trying to kill him, he says, "God, I hate that kind of sin." I'm with you. I want to agree with you. That's detestable. I love the way that this shows David's confidence that God does know his heart. And In fact, that's why he would declare in verse 23 and 24, he puts himself under the microscope, doesn't he? He said, God, go ahead. Just test me now. Search me. Try me. Know me. And you'll know that in this prayer, there's nothing in this prayer that comes from the wrong kind of spirit. In fact, if there is God. Cleanse me from it. You see verse 23 and 24? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. The word there's motives or cares. And he says, see if there's any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. So in these last two verses, you find, again, the theme of knowledge surfacing in the phrase search me, know me, try me. And then the idea of presence when he says, lead me in the way everlasting. He said, I'll follow you, God. Just show me the way. I hope you're seeing that in these 24 verses, here are two uh, theological truths that just continually surface. They're always bubbling up. God's infinite knowledge about you and God's inescapable presence with you. And it's to be a comfort and a security, a confidence, even in our prayers, we're not even sure how to pray in a way that sounds right. We are confident God knows us and God is with us. Maybe you're saying, Well, Todd, that is helpful. That's delicious. These are morsels I'll chew on all day. This is a fantastic chapter. But is that just it? I mean, there you go, right? Is that, that kind of it? I think there's a single word in the chapter that actually will help all of the truths that we're kind of meditating on and chewing on, um, I think it will help the chapter as a whole gain even more clear focus. Because David not only asserts and states his confidence in these two truths, God's infinite knowledge and inescapable presence. He asserts his confidence in those. But he also tells us why. And here's where the chapter I think it takes on a, even a clearer, can I say deeper meaning? It's all hinged to the first word of verse 13. Put your nose in your Bible, put your finger right on it, would you? In which David says, For, say with me, church, for, for you formed my inward parts. You see, David's coming out of 12 verses of extolling God's knowledge and presence. And how does David now take this to another whole level theologically, even practically? He says, here's why I'm so confident that you know me and that you're with me. It's because you made me. And from verses 13 through 16, I've got them bracketed in my Bible. You should bracket them off. What David does, he describes God's intimate creation of his life. And this is the foundation of his confidence that God knows him infinitely and is with him inescapably. So can we just take this understanding of this chapter and seeing now how it's really hinged to the middle section and especially tied to this first word in verse 13, 4. And let's try to put this into a single sentence where we can understand the entire chapter in kind of a succinct fashion. Here's what I would say would be the historical, I'll call it the past tense truth Of Psalm 139. Here's what David was teaching in this psalm. That his confidence regarding God's infinite knowledge about his life. And inescapable presence in his life. Revolved around God's intimate creation of his life. So to make sure this is kind of cementing into your mind. To make sure it's kind of settling into your soul. Can we together read this out loud? We do it often here at First Family. Can we together out loud read this? This take home truth in the past tense as David was understanding it. Together, church? David's confidence, God's infinite knowledge about his life, and inescapable presence in his life revolved around God's intimate creation of his life. So just understand all we're saying here is that there is a special relationship when you have made something. When you're the owner of it, when you're the creator of it, the, the maker of it, there's a unique and special relationship. This is not hard to grasp or hard to fathom. I mean, I think especially of home builders. This is something they understand are furniture builders or those who, who work with all kinds of different objects in this way. But I'm thinking especially of home building. Now, they they know uh, in, a, in a special way what they've created. I remember when Julie and I were... Going to replace the trim in our home. This is several years back. Um, we debated how to go about it because I'm not a very good carpenter. In fact, I would even put that, those words together. I'm just not a good carpenter, period, okay? But we thought we could tackle it together. So we bought some tools and we tackled this project of retrimming our home. We took all the old off, put the new on. And if you were to come over to our home and just in a general way see it, you would probably say this it looks pretty nice. You would. And then at that very moment, Julie and I would catch eyes, and we would grin, and we would think to ourselves of all the times we said to each other, thank you, but, but don't worry, no one was going to see that. <laughs> and actually, let me rephrase that. All the times that I said to her, no, honey, it'll be okay, no one's ever going to see that. I don't think she ever said that to me. I would say to her, I got to have a pass on this one, okay? <laughs> because I know that trim work inside and out. Top to bottom, east to west, north to south, start to finish. I could take you to every space where, like, that corner didn't match up. That doesn't look good. That's got too much caulk. You with me? But if you just came in and glanced at it, you'd be like, oh, it looks pretty, it looks pretty good. Because I have a special relationship with the trim in my home. <laughs> okay? You've probably got something similar in your home or in your work or in your life that you've made that, that you just know inside and out. It's because you made it. You are the creator of it, so to speak. That's that's all David's driving at here. There's a reason he's so confident that God is, is with him, that God knows him. It's because God made him. So let's take this historical truth, how David worded it and what he asserted, and let's turn it into a timeless principle for us. Same truth, but in 2021. And together, can we read this, church? Confidence regarding God's infinite knowledge about my life and inescapable presence in my life revolves around God's intimate creation of my life. So what was true for David is true for you. And this is great news about our God because here's what the Bible is not portraying. Every ear listening, every eye watching. This is not some haphazard God This is not some random, if I get around to hanging out with you, count your lucky stars. This isn't some come and go God that I'll check my schedule and see if I'm available. Oh, I might be busy that day or I might be a little tied up. This is not some weak God who can't get around to everyone or you're next in line. The Bible does not present God that way. The God of the Bible is an intentional, proactive, powerful, all-present God who knows you infinitely, who knew you before anyone else on earth ever saw you or knew you and is with you always. That's the God of the Bible. Why can we assert that truth? Why can we rest in that truth? It's because God made us intentionally, fearfully, wonderfully, purposefully. Every single one of you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God by God. Now that truth means many things. I'm not gonna take time to list them here. I've written them in my notes. Uh, I would love to talk to you about the confidence it gives us, the appropriate warning it is for us, the comfort it brings us. Those are all things that we could apply in And be helped with. But there's one primary thing that this means. And it's especially important on today. And that's this. That viewing all of life correctly. It starts by valuing the beginning of life biblically. Let your eyes settle on this. Let your heart take in the truth of this chapter. And the way it revolves around verses 13 through 16. And the way it's tied to and hinged to the single word for in verse 13. For David could have no confidence about God's knowledge and presence. He wouldn't rejoice in that. He wouldn't pray honestly about it. All those things would never happen if David wasn't confident and sure that God was the maker of his life. The creator of his life. And so let's let's say this church. Are there issues throughout life? Yes, there are. There are a number of life issues on the cultural radar right now. Most certainly. Vulnerable children, vulnerable families, health issues, uh, end of life and dying with dignity issues. There's a number of issues that are all about visible life. We never discount those. But there is a priority issue. And I can maintain and contend there is a priority issue because the Bible prioritizes the issue. And the priority issue is the beginning of life. And if we wave, can I say it like this? If we surrender this priority issue, if we lose the battle on that issue, we're waving the white flag for every other life issue as well. You see, there are those who would claim, what about, and they list other life issues. And the assumption is that because life and the conception of it and the beginning of it is so important that we're saying those other issues don't matter. And that's a fallacy. That argument from the pro-death culture is a smokescreen. Learn to speak through it and to it. The truth is, I thank God for the capital C church And the people in this little C church who were advocates for and and supporters of and involved in things like foster care, adoption, homelessness, vulnerable families, end of life issues, elderly care. And you could list a number of other issues. Praise God for Christians, God's people involved in those. But if it weren't for a stance on the right to being born... And the right to life when no one else saw you but God and he was making you. We wouldn't even have those issues to deal with. You see, I think it's a a fallacy to to engage in what we call whataboutism. To think, well, because you're not addressing these perfectly, you must uh, not think they matter. I think the church can do more than one thing at a time. Amen, church? And so I'm helping you at this moment. Think through the smokescreen of the pro-death culture's current argument. We can do more than one thing. We can stand for life in a prioritized fashion at its beginning and also stand for other life issues as well. And we will, and we should. But the point is, there is a priority and a weightier issue. And it is about the beginning of life, where it starts and who makes it and who has the right to take it. And it is God and God alone. That's why I unapologetically, unashamedly, courageously, and boldly assert and say to you, this church, we will always stand for the priority of the right to life issue while we also embrace other life issues and be more than a, a, you know, just a one kind of aim church. We can do more than one thing at a time and by God's grace, we will. Now, I hope you've seen what we've done today. We have let the biblical address the cultural. You can insert other words if you'd like. We've let the biblical address the social. We've let the biblical address the political. I don't think I've been political or social or cultural. I think what I've been with you is what churches should be more about, and that is just biblical. And the biblical always informs everything else. Always. It should. And so we know where to stand because we know where the Bible stands, where God lands. Does that make sense? So if you were expecting much more of a political message or much more of a cultural message, what you've got instead is a biblical message that informs our stances and our action. And admittedly, we can take different actions in regards to our pro-death culture and how to stem the tide. We can t- those are I have a pretty strong voice publicly on that. I make no bones about it. Some of you may have other actions you take. The Holy Spirit can lead us differently. But here's where we're all going to put our feet, that God is the maker of life even in those moments of embryonic forms and conception, he started it, he's making it, he owns it, and only he has the right to take it. So we always, in every issue, for every situation, each opportunity, we let the biblical inform the cultural. So here's why that's important. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not new legislation that we need. Am I for new legislation? I am. I'm praying that we overturn the horrific legal ramifications of the Roe v. Wade decision. I write to that end. I'll speak to that end. I hope there is new legislation. But do I think that's the ultimate answer? I don't. We don't need new loopholes. What's needed is new life. You see, new life from God is what enables a person to see their life correctly under God. We can argue all day long in the halls of capitals. We can lobby. We can debate. But until God grants new life to people, they're not going to see life from His perspective. So our main aim, our ultimate prayer, is God Would you breathe new life into us? This is the essence of Liz's story. I so appreciate Liz's courage, her transparency, her vulnerability in showing us that the answer she needed wasn't new legislation or a loophole. It was new life in Christ. I want to say to all of you listening, I realize there are some listening here, watching here, live in this room. Abortion is part of your past, All of us have sins of some type in our past. Do you know what's needed for those sins, whatever they are? It's not new legislation. It's not another loophole. It's new life from Christ. And that's what sets our perspective about all life under Christ. This morning, you're feeling the weight of your sin. Perhaps you saw Liz's story. It resonated with yours. Or perhaps in this moment, God's Holy Spirit is just bringing an immense amount of conviction. And you're like, man, I need new life. I've been trying to run from God, but I realize I can't. I've been trying to hide from God, but he knows me too well. And this morning, I've realized God is is infinitely aware of my life. He's inescapable. Like, I just need to surrender to God. I've been trying to deal with my sin on my own ways, and I, I can't. I'm always left with the guilt of it, the weight of it. Todd, is there an answer? There is. It's called the gospel. Only the gospel of life can reverse a culture of death. Only the gospel of life can bring an individual from death to life. And the gospel of life is this, that Jesus Christ, God's son, came to the earth as a man. He lived for 33 years in a human body. He was one of us and he died on a cross and took your place, took my place. He paid sin's penalty in full so that you don't have to and to be right with God, to be saved, to be brought into new life, all one has to do is to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And then you express that to God. Something like this. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is your Son and my Savior, and that my sin has separated me from you. And I can't do anything on my own to be right with you, to be back home with you. But God, Jesus has done everything. Everything to forgive my sin. So God, would you through Jesus forgive my sin? I believe that he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And I put faith in Jesus as the only way to be saved. God, would you this morning save me through Jesus? And to that kind of prayer, God will give new life. He will stop Satan's abortion of your soul. And he will grant you new life. He'll bring you into his family. He'll regenerate you. He'll cause you to be born again by the Spirit. And you won't know, you'll no longer be under condemning death. You'll be living with new life. You see, that's the answer to the culture we're living in. It's not ultimately trying to change laws. It's not ultimately trying to change opinions. It's ultimately letting God change hearts. And that's done through the gospel of life. So this morning, I don't know what load you're bearing Maybe this morning you came and you're a solid Christian. You love Jesus. and Walking through Psalm 139 has been a delight to your heart. You're just beating in your chest and you're you're loving it. That's great. Maybe you think you stumbled in here looking for some answers. Maybe to kind of get back into church or maybe to find some fellowship after so many months of isolation. I don't know your situation. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ has come to take your sin away. He died on the cross to do exactly that. And I would encourage anyone who's trusted Christ to do this with me this morning. Take your phone out right where you are. And if you prayed with me earlier to receive Christ, just text, I got saved to 94,000. Or if you're in this room live, there's a card in the back of the chair in front of you. You can take that card, put your name on it. There's a box on there that you can check that says, I prayed to receive Christ. Now listen very carefully. Checking that box doesn't save you. Texting that number so I can rejoice with you doesn't save you. In fact, just saying the words that I gave you doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves. Prayers don't save. Numbers don't save. Altars don't save. Check boxes don't save. Amen, church? But they are legitimate ways, and they have been for generations, to respond to the gospel message. All I'm saying to you is I'm giving you options, ways to respond, to let someone know, I asked God to save me this morning to give me new life in the middle of my death. man. we want to know about that and rejoice with you. If you did pray that, Jesus has done exactly that. He has given you new life. In fact, that's what he's promised to do. Did you know that? So to close this morning, I want you to stand. And can we read the promise Jesus made to us in John 10? The promise of abundant life? Can we read the promise that says there is one who's trying to spiritually abort your soul? He's coming to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I've come not for those reasons. I've come to give you life. I'm the door. I can bring you to pasture where you can feed. And all the Bible says is this. If you want life from Jesus, then turn from sin, repent, and believe on the name of Christ and God will give you new life. So, church, together with passion and joy and thankfulness, let's read together John 10 9 and 10. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And the church said together, Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.